making it challenging to produce agricultural products. SunGrown Zero offers a solution. So if in the desert, a greenhouse cannot allow enough sunlight in to grow properly while still not allowing in the ultraviolet and the infrared. You can, however, build inexpensive modular buildings with a SunGrown Zero lighting solution. We can operate essentially off the grid. And as long as you have water, you can grow fruits and vegetables forever. Welcome to the Cannabis Business Podcast. As a cannabis entrepreneur, how do you become better at what you do? If you're like me, you read a lot of books, listen to podcasts, and attend conferences. But one of the best ways that I know how is to talk to business leaders. I want to welcome John Paracone to this podcast, CEO of SunGrown Zero, an innovative company that delivers a patented sun lighting control system for cannabis cultivation facilities. There are a few products that you can say are truly revolutionary. I hope you enjoy the show. I want to ask you the question about how you began. I know your name. The first time I heard it, I thought it was Italian. I am Italian. I know you have a construction background. I went to a Catholic school growing up, and I met a lot of kids whose families started in that area. When they came over to North America, they brought that with them. How did you get started at all? Like, I mean, why cannabis? From about when I was uh, 17 or 18, uh, the opportunity to continue in my dad's footprints. My dad was a very high-level project superintendent, union plumber in New York City. He was responsible for running multi-million dollar plumbing projects. In fact, under his direction, when I was an apprentice, we worked at Trump Towers on Fifth Avenue. We worked at the World Trade Center. We worked on Gramercy Park Hotel right there, Fifth Avenue and 55th Street. I did a project with him at the Federal Reserve Building. So he was a, a tremendously successful superintendent, basically the height of his the pinnacle of his profession. And the idea was I would follow in his footsteps. I was a talented plumber from very early age. I was very good with my hands. I'm very strong. I can think quickly. I'm an efficient worker. But it became clear to me by the time I was about 20 or 21 years old that I did not want to spend my life underground. And that's what you're doing when you're a plumber, you're underground, you're in the inside the walls, you're you know, under the floors. It's a dirty, very uh, physically challenging and demanding life. And I just felt like I was smarter and I could do something with my mind. So I failed and failed and failed for years. I kept on trying these different jobs and eventually led me to California. I was offered a, a job in California as a salesman. So I packed up and moved to the Bay Area, and the company that hired me went bankrupt nine months after I got there. And once again, I was back at square one, and I decided to go back to college, and I was going to become a teacher or a writer or something like that and use my brain, maybe even a professor, right? What happened was I got a job working as a punch list carpenter for a general contractor while I was a student at Berkeley in the late 90s. And it was around that time when there was a huge construction boom in the Bay Area. And the company that I was working for made me one of the, you know, proverbial offers that I couldn't refuse. And like, quit college and you can be a project superintendent running this restaurant project for us. We'll pay you all this money and blah, blah, blah. And I was about a year from my degree and I made the choice to jump ship. So once again, back in construction, but at least now I'm not wearing a tool belt and I'm not like climbing on ladders and I'm not carrying, you know, the weight, you know, I'm using my brain, which is what I wanted. In a short period of time, I got married, bought a house, had a kid and the bottom fell out. The recession hit San Francisco. I was about to find myself 
an unemployed project superintendent alongside about 400 other guys that were just as good at it as I was, and there was no money and no jobs. Coincidentally, I ran into one of the friends that had helped me get started as a cannabis cultivator after Prop 215 in 96. I ran into him at a concert, and I told him, I think I'm going to get laid off, blah, 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 but everything's great. He said, well, I'll tell you what, if you get laid off, let me know, give me a call. Maybe you come up to Humboldt and you can build an addition on my house for me. Three months later, I called him up. I am getting laid off in six weeks. Went up to his place. He lived right in the Emerald Triangle. And we brokered a deal where I would move up there with my family. He would give me a place to live. And I would build an addition on his house. Well, what happened was he didn't want to stay on the mountain and work on the cannabis that year. And so he slowly but surely got me to do both jobs. I did the addition and I was taking care of his plants. And when I saw how much money he made at the end of the year, I thought to myself, if this knucklehead can make this kind of money doing this, I'd be like the one-eyed man in the, in the land of the blind. I'd be the one-eyed king in the land of the blind. So I went and got an attorney. I hired Ed Denson, one of the founders of Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. He lived in, actually, in Alder Point. You know, the, the, the Netflix documentary that's out right now, the Murder Mountain documentary that's out on Netflix? I actually don't. Look, at, look up Murder Mountain. It's a documentary on Netflix. It's about a place in the Emerald Triangle called Alder Point. And Alder Point is about a half an hour from where I was living and doing my cannabis cultivation. And that's where Ed Denson lives. He lives there today, actually. <laughs> he lives at the base of Murder Mountain. Honestly. We call it Murder, Murder Mountain. That's really what it was referred to. They didn't make up that name. It's one of those areas up in the mountains of uh, Northern California that are, they're a little sketchy. Very difficult to get in and out of it. It's, uh, it's like going back in time. It's a little bit like um, you drive up from town for about 30 minutes and you make a right-hand turn and you start going down into the valley and then you cross a bridge. And when you make it across that bridge and the pavement ends, it's like Rip Van Winkle in a way, you know, the trees are growing over. It gets in the middle of the daytime. It's dark. You can get lost very easily. The roads that are, that were made by the logging companies 40, 50 years ago have been amended and changed by all the locals. People have their own driveways they put in and they've changed the roads and the roads are poorly maintained. When I first moved up there, I can tell you it's, it can be pretty intimidating. It's a sketchy kind of scary place. Phones don't work. It's like going back in time in a way. So it's a sketchy kind of an area. There's a lot of meth in that area. It's kind of the place where you go when you don't want to be seen by anybody at all. Tell us a little bit more about California. There will be people who may not know what uh, the stories about Emerald Triangle or even about the propositions that started this. Cannabis has been illegal my entire life. I believe uh, it was initially started to be propagandized against in the United States in the 20s and 30s. The backstory being that the DuPont family didn't want to have hemp competing with the paper they were producing from all the trees because they had spent all the money on the land that the trees were on. And so they decided to come up with a way to make cannabis illegal. They started calling it marijuana. They started associating it with violence and minorities. And, you know, black people would smoke marijuana and they'd rape the white women. And basically 
just a, a whole litany of uh, society's ills were ascribed to the use of cannabis. Now, keep in mind, cannabis was available to be given to you as in a prescription in the United States at this time. You could get cannabis. Cannabis use was uh, not illegal. It wasn't a big deal. I mean, we're still talking about the, the back in the time when Coca-Cola had cocaine in it. So it, it's it, it was it's a very strange kind of a story. So 168 nations signed a treaty about illegal drug use and cannabis is on that treaty. And so for all of my life, it's been illegal to own it, to have it, to grow it, to sell it, to use it. California in 1996, because of the AIDS epidemic, the HIV crisis, San Francisco was particularly hard hit by the AIDS crisis. San Francisco is the largest city and has the largest gay population in the United States, probably. It was ravaged by the AIDS crisis in the late 80s and into the early 90s. And a group of activists got together because they saw how cannabis was helping the AIDS patients deal with all of the unbelievable chemicals they were taking as they were trying to kill the virus. They were like basically enduring chemotherapy for years at a time, even taking AZT and all of these incredibly damaging drugs. They realized very quickly that cannabis was helping them not only deal with the impacts, but actually helping them feel better and be more healthy. Dennis Perone and a group of other activists in the gay community, Terrence Allen and uh, Dennis Perone and a group of guys got together and they worked for years raising money until they finally got Proposition 215 passed as the Compassionate Use Act. And Proposition 215 in 1996 represents the first law making cannabis legal in the United States since like the 1920s, I believe. And it was the beginning of what we now have in terms of the cannabis green rush that's been sweeping across both the United States and Canada. And now other countries is sweeping across Europe now. Ireland is getting involved. A lot of the Latin American companies, Jamaica just went uh, legal. So it all comes back to that. California is the genesis of the cannabis legal world. And in particular, the Emerald Triangle, the Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity counties up in the northern Redwood area of Northern California, that is the center of the cannabis industry. It's where it all began. Everything we know, everything we learned, everything we understand about how to grow cannabis, everything we understand about how to take care of uh, making sure that you don't mix the males and the females together, breeding technologies, the increase in the efficacy, the flavor profiles, the breeding, it all started there. In the 60s, a bunch of Vietnam vets essentially went up to that area, that rural area in the middle of nowhere, and they started growing cannabis to supplement their lifestyle of wanting to live off the grid. And they would basically grow cannabis and bring it down to the city, down to San Francisco, or some would bring it down to LA. They would begin producing Feminized cannabis, which is cannabis where you only grow the females, you create nothing but fruit, you don't create seeds, you just do large-scale feminized plants. Little by little, it got bigger and bigger. Prop 215 then created an avenue for these growers that were up in the mountains in the Emerald Triangle to slowly but surely uh, find a way into creating a legal way and a lawful protection to grow the cannabis. And they would form cooperatives where... uh, 50 different patients would get together and they would make copies of their doctor's recommendations. The guy that was the cultivator of the mountain would staple on the fence outside of his garden all of these different letters of recommendation and say that plant is for this one and that plant is for this one and to try to create a, a way to protect themselves from what then began 
happening, which was the federal government started interfering in Cal. So California had created a state level legal framework for cannabis to be grown with Prop 215. The federal government did not recognize that and it would raid clinics in San Francisco and then also in LA and it would raid the clinics and put people in jail. And more importantly, it started the camp program, the campaign against marijuana production, which was a federally funded cooperative joint venture between the federal government, the DEA and the department of justice and local law enforcement. They would give them tons of money. They would give them access to helicopters and uh, all kinds of high tech devices. And what began to happen was, you, you know, every summer around August, helicopters like Black Hawk down type of helicopters would fly around and try to find these outdoor illegal grows. And then they would coordinate with camp and go in there and cut them down and arrest people and, you know, confiscate the, the cannabis and everything. And that's really what was going on from 96 to 2014. Between 96 and 2014, California kept on amending Proposition 215 and the local counties would change the laws as per their county's purvey, saying, oh, in this, in this instance, you can have 100 square foot of canopy of cannabis if you file this paperwork. And then a year later, oh, no, it's 99 plants. And then another year, it's 1,000 square foot. Prop 215 was a very small document, which basically had almost no guidelines for how to govern or regulate or manage or tax or anything. It was just a way for someone that was dying to have access to cannabis's healing property. It was never intended to be an industry generator. So we had several different propositions and several different efforts to change the law to make it you know, legal the way it is now, and they all failed until Prop 64 came along. Prop 64 was passed in November of 2014, and it just basically said counties have the authority to regulate cannabis in their, in their counties, tax it, regulate it, oversee it, and the state is going to form a governing body that will regulate the state itself, the California Bureau of Cannabis Control. That's, head, that's headed up by Lori Ajax right now. So that's where it all began. Unfortunately, California is like five states rolled up into one. So we should have had a legal law there many, many years ago, like in 2000, when they tried that, that probably was the, the, that was probably far enough after Prop 215. And what ended up happening was Colorado became the first state to fully legalize cannabis in 2000, maybe 10, I believe, I think it was 2010, maybe 2011, maybe 2012. What's noteworthy about Colorado's program is how efficiently and well put together it was and how terrific it's worked. They've now generated over a billion dollars in tax revenue since, the, since its inception. In the first two or three years, they made so much tax revenue, they had to give rebates back to every uh, citizen of the state because they, they weren't allowed by their constitution's bylaws to spend the extra money. That's how much they were making. And what they did was they set up a very simple system with a low tax rate at the beginning, just a simple flat tax rate of 15%, I believe, per pound produced or something like that, plus a sales tax at the storefront. And that was it. And they said, here's, the, here's, your, here's your box industry. We're going to enforce compliance. We're going to make sure that you produce healthy, clean product, not using a bunch of illegal chemicals and pesticides. We'll watch that side of it. And you have a free market to develop and grow as an industry. And it's worked terrifically. There's been some consolidation. Some people would complain about that, but that's going to happen everywhere, no matter what. In reality, because of cannabis's unique agricultural properties, there are not going to be very many places where you're going to see 30,000 
people growing cannabis in a 4,000 square foot area like Humboldt County. What makes Humboldt County unique in that sense is that there's no competing agricultural industry nearby. Because cannabis is smoked and because cannabis, unlike virtually all other agriculture, is both oil-based and has no protective skin, it cannot be exposed to the cross-pollination of pesticide use from a competing agricultural product. You cannot grow cannabis alongside a vineyard because the pesticides and mildecides that vineyard uses are not legal to be used on cannabis. And that cross-pollination, you can't clean it off because it's an oily, sticky, resin-filled product that's exposed on the outside of the cannabis plant itself. There's no way to protect it, right? You can wash that stuff off of a grape, but you can't wash it off of the cannabis. It gets absorbed into the cannabis plant, right? And so Humboldt County is like the bunch of mountains. It's just a bunch of individual mountain areas where everyone can just like put a plot down and you grow your cannabis there. It's not the soil. It's just the, it's the remoteness. It's the weather. It's the wind. But it's, there's nobody else growing anything nearby. You don't have to worry about somebody spraying their tomatoes with an airplane, right? There's not, there's not, so you can, you can do it. And as long as the, the price per pound remains at a certain level, then you know you can get away with running a small business up there when you want to go 200 pounds or 500 pounds, which sounds like a lot. It is a lot of work, but if you think about what these companies are doing now, 100,000 square foot indoor facilities, 400,000 square foot greenhouses, a million square foot of greenhouses back to back, 100,000 square foot greenhouses stacked back to back. You talk about the kind of production those guys are talking about, 500 pounds, that's nothing. 500 pounds is their wastage in a building like that, in a, in a grow like that. You know, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about your work with the California Cannabis Voice. There's not very many people in the cannabis space who've done as many broad things as you, and one of them being the advocacy slash uh, contacting uh, the legislature. And it might not even be legislature, but I know there's a municipal, a regional kind of work. Can you tell me a little bit about the CCVH? CCVH, California Cannabis Voice Humboldt. In 2014, we were about to vote down another ordinance, another proposition. They put together a proposition, or we had just voted it down, one or the other. But I think it was just before we did the vote, because it was May of 2014. A friend of mine introduced me to uh, a, a, an attorney who was an activist. His name was Matt Cuman, and his business associate, Terrence Allen, who I mentioned before had worked with Dennis Perone on Prop 215. And Matt and Terrence had founded California Cannabis Voice. It was a statewide political action committee. And they, through a friend of mine, they were actually working as an attorney, an actual cannabis attorney for a friend of mine. They brought the idea to him that we found and open up a California Cannabis Voice chapter in Humboldt. And when I found out about it, I was ecstatic. My two cents is the writing was on the wall. Legalization was coming. I did not want to have somebody in Sacramento writing the rules for how Humboldt County was going to govern cannabis. The writing on the wall meant that the state was going to have an overarching uh, body, a, a regulatory body that was going to oversee the state at, as a whole. And each county would have its own ordinance that would regulate and tax and govern the local cannabis businesses. That's three different businesses, cultivation, manufacturing, processing, and sale. And included in sale would be delivery because we're up in the middle of nowhere. 
And so I was very concerned Humboldt County was basically not going to have a voice at the table. So I agreed to found it. I, I called together a, a dozen of my neighbors and we had the meeting with Matt and Terrence Allen and another attorney, uh, Mark uh, Harris. He's a, a Humboldt County cannabis criminal attorney. He's very well regarded, well respected. And he's an attorney of several of the friends of mine that attended. The way that the PAC had to be founded, we had the right checks, couldn't put cash in the bank. We found a local bank that would allow us a bank account. We told them we're not a cannabis business. We're a political action committee. We just have cannabis in the name, et cetera. And I got 12 people, myself included, to write a check for $10,000. And we opened up CCVH. We formed an ad hoc committee of some local activists that put together a series of shareholder and stakeholder meetings over the course of about 15 months. I was in the background. My leadership was in building it and then guiding it from the shadows because I was still at that point an outlaw commercial grower. Exposure was not in my or the other 12, 11 investors. It wasn't in their interest either. None of us wanted our names associated with it. So we created an ad hoc committee that, that took it and ran with it. I think we had five stakeholder meetings. Each meeting had about 25 attendees, basically five people from law enforcement, five people from the fire department, five people from the building and planning department, five people from the water board, and five cultivators. Our stakeholder meetings were organized and run by Lindsay Robinson, who is now the vice president of California Cannabis Industry Association, CCIA. At the time, she was an executive at Marijuana Policy Project, MPP. And Lindsay came and she came up for all five meetings and she basically guided us into determining the structure and the framework of the different requirements we wanted to have, what's the size of the grow and on and on and all these different things. And then we raised some money and we hired some people that write laws, basically. And they drafted our ordinance. We got the ordinance approved by the Board of Supervisors and ratified three months before Prop 264 passed in 2016. So we wrote our own laws for how the cultivation, manufacturing, delivery, and sale of cannabis happens in Humboldt County. I think it's great that that happened that way. I think municipalities really should step forward rather than just wait for other people to decide for them. And unfortunately, I mean, in Canada and Hamilton and other, uh, maybe even in my own neighborhood in uh, Montreal, a lot of the municipal politicians, at least, even the local uh, provincial ones, probably would rather have someone else do it. Because yeah. I think they're worried that their constituents may just, you know, I'm trying to think of the word, but... The stigma. I mean, I don't know if you know this, Montreal, Quebec, or Quebec in general, is recognized as the least comfortable with wanting to legalize marijuana. Oh, really? I went to a dispensary the other day, the government run here. Uh, going there the third time, I realized why I don't like it there. It, it mm. feels like a, a conveyor belt. So there's a line that you wait to get in. Then when you get in there, there's a line to get to the counter. And then when you get to the counter, there's not a lot of product. In a sense, they're telling you what they have. They don't really care what you want. Exactly. And then you, you tell them what you want, and then you get into another line, and you pay. Yep. And uh, then you're out. And it's really quick, actually. Mm. But it's not the kind of feeling of terpenes or when you want to yeah. think about what you're getting. You got to come to California and go to some dispensaries in San Francisco and Los Angeles and other places. It's nothing like that. You're walking into a beautiful space. It's wide open. You can browse around. You've got 
counters for flour, counters with vapor pens, counters with extracts, a counter where you can buy your own clones. You've got guys there that can help you learn about your preferences if you're inexperienced or you've never had. Some people walk in there and they've never had such variety before. They go to their guy that they buy weed from and it's like, what do you got? I got this. Great. That's the stuff, you know. And you walk into a place and they've got 25 or 35 different choices. I've been involved in working in Canada as well. I was a shareholder in a Canadian LP for the last four years. So I've been up there in Canada. I've attended conferences there. I've spoken to government officials. I've spoken to people in the Health Canada side. You guys are many years away from having that kind of variety. You have the production capacity right now for probably 15% of your demand. Was that right? I, I thought the numbers by 2020 would be better. Do you know who Jody or Emery is? She's a terrific activist up there. And she believes that if Health Canada would have just uh, grandfathered all of the uh, uh, outlaw growers and allowed their product to hit the shelves, you guys wouldn't have a shortage at all. So that's, the, that's one of the struggles that I have with, with uh, dealing with legislators and regulators and government officials is their mindset that I've noticed almost everywhere I've gone, the mindset is, here's this brand new thing that we're going to introduce, and we have to make sure all these problems don't happen. And my, my mindset is, it's not a brand new thing at all. It's like, we have to come up with a way to test drivers and make sure they're not driving while they're impaired. People have been smoking cannabis and driving for the whole last 40, 50 years, and not, there's not been a problem. I get very passionate about this. Cannabis has been illegal for my whole life, right? That's a fact. Fact one, law enforcement goes to great lengths to arrest and prosecute cannabis growers, users, and sellers. That's point two. If cannabis-impaired driving was an issue, we would already have a cannabis-impaired driving booklet to look at because they would have figured it out 30 years ago, there would already be a way, if cannabis-impaired driving was a problem, we'd already know about it, and we'd already have a solution. It would not be legalization. New York State, for instance, 0.08 is your DUI number. That's your legal limit is 0.08, right? That's been in, in place in, in New York 30-something years now. It used to be DWI, and it was 0.10. Back when I was a teenager, when I first got my license. So Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MED, that organization, got drunk driving to the forefront as, an, as a, a problem 40 years ago. And we've known about it. And now it's even stricter now than it used to be then. In that same period of time, when I was 14 years old, I was smoking weed and I was drinking beer. Both things were available to me. So that's 40 years ago. I've been able to do both. And over the whole 40 years, nobody's had a problem with the one until now it's legal. And my point is this, law enforcement makes far too much money off of cannabis being illegal for them to go, sure, no problem, 100%, everything's fine. So every state or country has meetings where they're talking about how to write the laws and write the ordinances and regulate the industry. And at that table are cops prison officials, and lawyers. And those three groups have a financial incentive to keep talking about how dangerous it is, how much of a problem it causes, and how we have to watch every step that everybody makes and make sure they don't do anything wrong. 
But right now in Canada, you've got 40 million people that have been smoking weed for my whole life. If there was a driving while under the influence of cannabis issue, you'd already know about it. Same thing here in New York, California, everywhere. If it was a problem, we'd already know. Cannabis isn't new. I could call up. I could go on. There's apps. When I'm in New York City in a bar, there's an app. I can go beep, 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 and a guy will deliver the weed to the bar where I'm standing. Outlaw, black market. It's not new. It's just we're just going to pay taxes on it now. Very recently, uh, you were pretty upset with what's happening in California for lab testing. Part of the reason I bring it up is because the idea is that we want to reduce pesticides. You think this is a big issue, and I, I kind of want to hear what your thought is on what's happening in California with that. It, it, it's a big issue because unlike Canada, the United States still does not have a federal government agency regulating the testing industry. And so when, when we first started to have the larger dispensaries, say 12, 2012, 13, maybe a little earlier even. I remember I was I was working with uh, Los Angeles Patients Caregiver Collective about eight years ago. When you started to see guys like, the guys that were my thought process were like guys that were treating it like a profession, started producing larger amounts of cannabis, started needing to have access to bigger buyers. So we started connecting with the larger cooperatives and dispensaries and that's when the testing industry started to really become part of the, the, the process. So you'd have a 50-pound a box of uh, OG Kush. And you would, before you could sell that to Harborside or whoever, you needed to get a certificate from a testing lab that had been tested. Here's how much THC it had. Here's what its terpene profile was. And here's the lab results on hundred different things, pesticides, E. coli, adulterants, dirt, pollen, whatever. In those early days, still operating sort of in an outlaw environment, test, test results were fudged constantly. They just were. For an extra, for an extra $200, you got 24% THC instead of 18. People might not realize that when we're talking about fudging, what we're trying to say is that for some of the labs, it can be a competitive environment. So for uh, producers to come to you, and I'll even say it another way, for producers to sell product, they want to sell a high THC or other kinds of related kind of thing. So if they can show that it's high, they can sell it at a better profit. Yep. So a lot of, unfortunately, um, I don't know if it's conflict of interest or there's another word for it. Exactly the word. That's a conflict of interest. That's exactly what it is. And it, it was more than that. Building those testing labs, those testing massively expensive. And so in the early days when guys had raised, say, a million or $2 million, and they were doing tests for 250 or $350 a test, well, there's a lot, that's a lot of tests that you have to do to make up that million dollars that you just spent. And so if you came to me with your cannabis that you just spent all summer growing and I gave you a bad number, why wouldn't you go to another guy next time? That was pretty widespread early on. It's still pretty widespread in California. There was just another article not that long ago, maybe a month ago at uh, on MJ Biz, another another cannabis testing lab just pleaded pled guilty to some charge of, you know, fudging and manipulating test results. Another way to think about it is like this. Unlike any other industry, if you're a cannabis cultivator, you do not have access to banking capital. You do not have access to uh, credit lines. You don't have the ability to write off your expenses. Um, sure, you're not paying taxes per se, but the trade-off 
is dramatic. And so you go and you spend all of your money from February to October. You've been paying your workers, keeping your power on, paying for your nutrients, feeding your family and everybody, paying your mortgage. Nutrients can be phenomenally expensive. A five-gallon jug of some of the high-end nutrients that are out there right now could cost $300. And you'll go through thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in nutrients and supplements. You'll spend, if you don't have a good access to water, you might, I, one year when I had a bad water year, I spent $60,000 on getting water delivered. So it's extremely hard work. It's extremely expensive and it's extremely challenging to grow superstar cannabis. And it all comes down to at the end of the year, you got to take that cannabis and show it to somebody and they got to give you a grade. And that grade is going to affect whether you have a vacation this year or you don't. And for some people, the impact could be, I'll have to borrow money to get through next year or I won't. So the incentive to tell the testing guy, listen, I'll make it worth your while if you give me the green stamp, that that incentive is really high. If I walked into a guy, had a, I had a thousand pounds of cannabis, what would be the, wh why wouldn't I give him an extra thousand dollars to make sure I got the right number? That's nothing. The difference between me selling my cannabis for 2,800 a pound or 1,800 a pound, and I have a thousand pounds of it, I'll give him $10,000. And I'm sure guys did. I'm sure guys did. And I'm sure guys still do. Period. For California, the, it, the state should run all of the testing labs. The government should be responsible for the testing labs in every single way. They should be far more strictly uh, monitored than the growers, actually. Because if you monitor the testing labs properly, then if the growers are screwing around, you'll find out. There's far fewer testing labs than there are growers. And the testing labs are far smaller than the, than the giant commercial facilities that are being used for cultivating. So if you, over, if you have proper oversight of your testing labs, every single one of them under government you know, monitoring, then every grower that tries to cut a corner is going to get caught there. And that'll be the backwards pressure that you need to incentivize the growers to use proper growing technology, proper growing techniques. Right. So things, the most important things that growers face, the biggest issues that growers face from a failure standpoint are almost always going to be white powdery mildew and botrytis mold. Those are your two number one concerns. When you're outdoors, you have some others, but we're moving towards a predominantly closed environment growing world. White powdery mildew and mold. And those, those things grow in environments that have high levels of humidity, high levels of heat. If you have a properly ventilated, properly run technology system and we're talking about like a pharmaceutical grade facility is what we're talking about this is a good opportunity for me to ask you about sun grow zero sun grow zero and, and and some of the other work that you do you do double cleft management as well dcm is a whole is essentially at this point a consulting company that's operating as a holding company for sun grown zero for for all intensive purposes everything i'm doing right now is sun grown zero so SunGrown Zero is an agricultural uh, technology company. We design and build cultivation facilities that incorporate several different patented technologies that allow us to bring sunlight into an indoor space without transferring any heat and therefore without creating extra humidity. When that, that, what that equates to is by using natural sunlight to drive photosynthesis, we reduce the electricity use of the indoor uh, cultivation. 
because we're using natural sunlight, we have the highest levels of cannabinoids and terpenes because full color sunlight produces full expression of the cannabinoids and terpenes. If you add it all up together, what you have is an industry best failure rate because without any heat buildup, we have no humidity, which means we have no mold and mildew. Highest quality cannabis because it's full color sun, full cannabinoid, full terpene profile cannabis. And it's the least expensive and most environmentally efficient way to cultivate the cannabis. And in fact, in certain states that have a, a high level number of sunshine days, like for instance, Florida or California or Nevada, Oklahoma, among others, we can build facilities that can operate at almost or approach net zero electric cons consumption. I don't think a lot of people who are outside of the growing or uh, urban planning kind of uh, set would understand what net zero means. I understand net zero meaning when it comes to waste products or energy consumption that you're actually trying to get to neutral or zero. When we think about net zero, you have two, two drivers of electricity consumption in a, in a cannabis cultivation facility. One of them is obviously just flat old lights, right? Running your lights. The other is running your HVAC, your heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems. Now, in the three traditional cannabis cultivation designs that are, exist, that are in existence right now, all three of them put enormous strain on the HVAC systems and cause those systems to run at max capacity for pretty much 12 hours out of the 24 hours of the day. Max capacity. A room with 50,000 watt bulbs in it, each bulb generating 3,400 BTUs of heat for every second that it's on. That's like a, a room with like 10 furnaces that are just roaring all day long. And you need to keep that room at 70 degrees with an ambient humidity around 40%. Well, the plants are guzzling water because it's so hot. So they're, transport, they're transpiring moisture into the air super, super fast. Basically, that's why these, these rooms have these super high ceilings. They have these super high ceilings so that cloud of fog of moisture can rise up above the canopy so you don't get mold and mildew. So you got your heating and ventilation are just blasting away, pouring AC into the bottom of the room, pulling out the hot air up the top. It's a, it's a fight that cannot be won forever. We like to say, when you build it, you build a greenhouse, a mixed light, or an HPS indoor. Basically, when the building is done and you open, when you lock that door, you've got a werewolf in that building. That werewolf is going to kill something sometime, somewhere. You don't know where and when, but, you're, but it's locked in the building, and you will never, ever get rid of it. So you might go 15 months without a problem and then lose a whole half of your building. And then you clean it up and you go another 10 months and lose two rooms. It's never going away. SunGrown Zero's facility design, there's no werewolf in the building. When the building is done, we have built it without an inherent design flaw. That's the difference. And like I said, in certain locations, we are working with four separate patented technologies to design facilities that can operate essentially from an electricity standpoint off the grid. Your price per gram from an electricity standpoint is zero. In preparation for this interview, I read another interview you had where you said something like 50 to 60% of 
uh, growing production areas might have mold in them. I think you're you're talking about licensed producers in Canada. You weren't saying they do have it in Canada. You were just saying greenhouses in general tend to have high amounts of, of mold. Oh no! What I was saying was, Health Canada in 2017 had released the initial reports on their testing for just for failure. They didn't specify uh, mold, mildews, or pesticide, illegal pesticide use, just failure in general. And greenhouse facilities had the highest incidences of failure. They were having failure rates above 50%. And the other two designs, the mixed lights and the HPS were in the, the high 30s, the mid to high 30s in terms of failure. That's catastrophic. If you have 100,000 square foot and you only get to harvest 50,000 square foot of it, that's not a business model that's going to work. I also discovered that the larger the facility, the worse the problem. So what we, le what we learned up in Humboldt County when we first started doing uh, outlaw, middle of the woods, we would build these indoor 1,000-watt uh, facilities. The first thing we learned was the how, how to make them tall. Instead of having a, you know, instead of building the walls with two by eights, we started building the walls with eight footers, 12 footers. The first thing we learned was how much heat was in the room. We needed to grow the height of the building so that we had somewhere for the heat to go. Then we learned that you needed to have the cold air influx on the ground level and the hot air outflux on the roof level. So you had constantly cold air being pulled in from the outside. The other thing we learned was it was better to have a lot of small rooms than one big room. Because if you do get a problem, like we say in the industry, the minute you see mold, it's everywhere. So if you got a 100,000 square foot greenhouse and you go, uh-oh, there's mold right there, Health Canada is going to tell you to chop the whole thing down. With greenhouses, because the walls are made out of plastic primarily and the ceilings are made out of either polythyrene or sometimes some kind of polycarbonate and in some instances glass, it's very difficult to sequester and build those walls in those greenhouses. It is not very conducive to that. The other problem is the larger the square footage, the larger, the greater the volume of air that has to be moved so that you're constantly getting that humid, moist air from the plants are transpiring. You got to get it out of there. Well, if it's 100 feet from here to here, it's a lot bigger of a challenge than if it's 25 feet from here to here. And this is true simply because of the fact that all three designs come with inherent flaw. And the inherent flaw is too much heat, which creates too much humidity. So you have to sequester those risks. So when you go to a, a large-scale commercial indoor facility in Canada, you're not going to see rooms with more than 20 or 30 lights in them. With the idea being, I'd rather lose one of those rooms than the whole half of the building. That's because... That, that is a, 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 a tacit admission that the design comes with a flaw. Think about that. The extra money that it costs them to make a lot of small rooms instead of one big room, they light that money on fire because they know that they are going to lose rooms. Going in, they understand one out of every five, one out of every six of these rooms we are going to be throwing away. They know it. This is where I, I say revolutionize or revolutionary. Uh, that word gets said, but it's not often you can apply it to something. So this technology, this patented uh, technology that you and your, your team have created, it really changes the industry. I also want to say it's not just for cannabis. It's also for food. And I know that uh, 
if you're in uh, parts of the world where they don't have a lot of land area, it's also great to grow it indoors. And I see your product as being something that uh, will really make, you know, agriculture grow, grow in parts of the world. It's sort of the new idea, your lighting system. If people have never heard of it before, they're surprised that, that it can do what you're mentioning. And to be honest, for me, I'm not a grower. The idea to be in a room where you have a sunlight, a version of sunlight that comes in and you don't feel hot, very easily made me understood the humidity problem that you were talking about yeah. and the mold problem that's out there and how a lot of the problems some of these growers have now is that they started too soon. And what I mean by that is they got the latest technology they knew at the time, but unfortunately the design failures that you're talking about, uh, the design flaws, that was the past. So we're in a, a new world for your technology. It's, it's, that's an interesting way to put it. You know, what I've said in the past about this, on this topic, every design that's being used to grow cannabis right now was not created to grow cannabis. Greenhouses were not created to grow cannabis. Greenhouses are very specifically a hothouse plant design. Greenhouses are designed originally for things like roses and, and ornamental flowers. They were designed, there was an acknowledgement as soon as the first greenhouse was built, with the term greenhouse gases was formed, there was an acknowledgement that there was no way to let sunlight in and keep heat out, period. Because if you want to darken the glass, then less sunlight comes in. So you want to stop the heat, the glass has to be so dark you can't drive photosynthesis. There's no middle ground there. There's no way to put a coating on the glass that reflects infrared and UV and still allows the sunlight in. And so cannabis is very specifically not a hothouse plant because cannabis is an oil-based plant that carries 99% of its value on the outside of the plant itself. It is the most susceptible to mold and mildew of virtually any plant that there is. And so any design that by its nature creates a high level of heat and humidity should not be used for cannabis. So when you go see on these pictures, on these websites, all these uh, Aurora and Canopy and all these guys, Apria, they're going, we have a million square foot of greenhouse that's in design and, and, and build out in you know, Saskatchewan right now. And they show you these pictures. The greenhouses themselves are 23 feet and taller. And why is that? Well, it's a lot more expensive to build it that way. So why are you doing it, guys? You're doing it because you have an inherent design flaw that you have to mitigate. And they have these huge high areas set up so that when the heat hits those plants and they transpire all that water, there's a place for that muggy air to go. It goes up. Now, keep in mind, Health Canada has already made it very clear, closed loop air systems, even if you have a greenhouse, which means... You can't just open up the roof like we do in, in Northern California and just let it go up out the roof. You can't just have a fan up there going and blowing it out. Closed loop means you have to power it through a closed loop HVAC system, which means the HVAC systems that you use in a greenhouse are just as gigantic and just as energy hogging expensive as the ones you use on a thousand watt HPS or an LED mixed light, you know, greenhouse or whatever. They're all the same. We've got, you know, our first customers lined up that are gonna that are making the jump, that they get it, that they understand, they, they've heard me say it enough, 
They've seen the videos. They've got it. Uh, one of the first facilities we're going to be building is in New Mexico. Um, we're going to be building in Desert Hot Springs. We've got a company in Florida that we're working with, Arizona. We're, uh, right now, we're concentrating on the Sunshine States for Sun Grown Zero, because I know that we can make the biggest impact there. We can't get net zero in Toronto or in Ontario or uh, even in British Columbia. You just don't have the sunlight intensity. The sun's path isn't as direct as it would need to be. But we can probably produce cannabis for 40 or 50% less electricity use, which is, that's pretty gigantic. There are companies out there that'll come to you right now and say, I'll save you 3% if you give me, a, if you give me 10% of the savings and people jump all over that. We're talking about 40 or 50%. Drop your electricity bill from, you know, a dollar a gram to 50 cents a gram. It's a lot of money. You helped with understanding what makes Canada and California or the sun states different. If you were to give advice to anyone who wants to open up one of these, either craft or maybe even a big, bigger production, what advice do you give them to think about before they get started? I'm going to open up a facility. What do you tell them? I'm going to go under the assumption that they have some, they have some idea how to cultivate Either they've done it before or they got a guy on their team that has. You mentioned that, that qualification. I would assume that that's usual, but in some cases, I guess it isn't. No, it's, it's fairly common. If you're a millionaire and you want to get into the cannabis space, the first thing you do is you probably call up your, the guy that you buy your cannabis from, right? You, buy, you call up your dope dealer. And you're like, listen, I want to meet the guy that grows that product. The dealer will be like, what? No, I can't do that. Go, yeah, yeah. I want to get a license. I want to get an LP. I need to talk to somebody that's a grower, set up a meeting. I'll take you guys out for a fancy dinner. And if he likes the grower, they'll maybe offer him a position. Say, how would you like to run this thing for me? Or introduce me to somebody that does. So a lot of times when I go into these meetings with these large producers or whatever, they've got their own expert in the door already. And so not only do I have to convince them of my position, that there's a, a better way to do it, They've already spent whatever money they've spent with this guy telling them this is the way to do it. So it's a big challenge there. So in a way, you've got to be like, well, he's doing it wrong. So is that guy going to that's, – that's a challenge. So the first thing I would say is before you go find yourself a cultivator, you should do research on the designs that are out there and get your mind right about what is going to work. Because – the electricity costs and the failure costs that are part of the systems that are out there right now, which are widespread, completely known in the industry. These are not like, I'm not like making stuff up or I'm not saying things that they don't know. You go talk to any grower that's about to light up a 50,000 square foot HPS facility and ask him how much sleep he thinks he's going to get over the next six months. His answer is going to be none. That's how much worry and stress, because he knows, growers know, you are going to fail. It's built in. So I would tell people that are looking to get into this space, first thing you want to look into is how much is that failure going to cost? And is there a solution out there that beats that number, that beats that failure? You should be hiring a cultivator that's going to run the design that you have chosen not the other way around because the cultivators there are no master cultivators you hear this all the time oh i have a guy on my team he's a master cultivator there is no such thing what you have is a guy that knows how to grow this kind of weed in this kind of building using these kind of nutrients in this part of the country 
That's what you've got. And you start changing those variables, and that's the M and the A, that's the S and the T, that's the E and the R, and then you've got a grower, not a master grower. A guy that can grow any weed in any type of design anywhere in the world, that guy doesn't exist. That's, a, that's like Superman. That, that guy doesn't exist. There are guys that know how to do what they do, and they do it very, very well. I'll even throw you a name. John Fowler of Supreme is that kind of grower. He knows what kind of design he wants to use. He knows what kind of cannabis he's going to grow. He knows what his systems are. He knows what his nutrients are, and he trains his people accordingly. He pro he's one of the, if not the best in Canada, he's certainly in the top three of what is out there, and he knows how to do it right. He keeps his building small, he keeps it tight, and he puts on the, he puts on the Tyvek suit, and he goes and does it himself. That's hard to do at a million square feet. The, the best advice I have for you, if you want to get started, is start small and make sure you have enough money to fail. Because if you want to learn how to grow cannabis, you're going to, learn, you're going to need to learn how to fail. You need to be okay with losing because you're going to lose. Growing cannabis is, is, is uh, it's so different than any other agriculture. Uh, you think about it like this. And so you're going to take this plant and you're going to feed it rocket fuel every day from minute one to minute done. And the type of fuel it consumes changes throughout that entire growing process. Whether you do light deprivation, which is two harvests in a year, or you do a full sun season, which is a nine month or so. Over the course of that nine months, that nutrient protocol is going to change. And it's very difficult to understand just by looking at the plant and paying attention to you test your water and you can get a bricks meter and you can test the plant's leaves composition and you can pay attention to the weather and you can look at what the color of the plant is. But it takes years to learn. With one type, with one strain, it can take years many runs to learn that plant and what it wants and how it wants, how much nutrients to give it, how, what's the concentration in your parts per million? Are you full you're feeding it? Are you not fully feeding? It? When do you leaf it? When do you trim it? When do you spread the netting over it, et cetera? So start small, learn from failure, be okay with failure. Don't start out the gate needing your first harvest to pay your bills. When I started growing on my own, not working for somebody, it was year three up on that mountain. And year three, I put in a, the size of a garden, should have grown 100 pounds, I grew 68. Year two, I should have grown 200, I grew 108. Year three, I should have grown 300, I did 180. It was like that. And it wasn't like they were A plus. My, 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 my friends were helping me sell it and I was getting the worst prices out of everybody. It was five or six years of failure. There's no way to learn how to be great at it if you're not failing. You need to learn from making mistakes. You need to be by yourself. Call up your buddies. They come over and look. They have no idea what you're doing. I have no idea. My plants have never looked like that. I'm like, why are they all yellow like that? They're like, I don't know. I've never seen that before. What do you mean you've never seen it before? You've been doing it for 25 years. That's what I went through for like six years of like some of the best growers in the world would come to my garden and be like, I've never seen that before. I don't know what you're doing. I've never seen a plant that color before. What? what are you talking about? You've been doing this for 25 years. I'm relying on you. He goes, I can't help you, man. I don't know what's going on.
which is a good time for me to come full circle back to uh, Sun Grow Zero. And you were like many who were like one or two or three people who say garage business, where you had a little small business and you needed to uh, do some experimenting and learning along the way, right? I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your start at Humboldt and how you ended up with SunGrow, if there's a story of the journey. Well, you know, I told you about how I got up there. I was getting laid off and my, my buddy gave me a job doing an addition for him. And over the course of that summer, all of his neighbors tried to hire me away from him. And I learned in that first summer that talented individuals, people who know how to like get things done, whether it be from a builder's perspective or just from, you know, the type of person that can, you know, stand in a difficult situation, figure out a solution and then bring that solution forward. So I made the decision that I was going to stay up there and become a cultivator. So we got a job with another friend. We stayed at another house the second year through that friend and a group of others. I met the guy that eventually sold us the property that we bought in the Emerald Triangle on the Hog Trap Road. That was my third year. That was 04. We turned the power on on October 31st of 2004 when I owned my own place. The journey to get to Sun Grown Zero really was a journey of me applying construction techniques and construction principles to what my friends were teaching me. So I kind of joke about how I failed all the time and they didn't know what the answer was. The reason, one of the reasons they couldn't help me was because I was doing things slightly different than they were. So they would teach me how to build, say, the beds. Well, I would build them for myself a little more efficiently and in a slightly more uh, well laid out kind of uh, way, more thoughtful. And they showed me how to do watering and I wanted to put in automatic watering systems and no one did that at the time. And then on and on. So by about year four, I had a, a garden and a layout of my garden, a design of my garden that no one else had. And it was all, it was brand new. And little by little, it became what eventually became the outdoor model that the industry uses. It's the industry standard now. Light deprivation rows put in that perpendicular to the sun, automatic watering, shallow beds, lots of tiny plants. Basically, that technology, I designed it, implemented it, built it, ran it, perfected it, and gave it away. In year 10, and it, it, year 10 for me, up on the mountain of Humboldt was when the buyers told me to tell all my neighbors and friends that they needed to start doing what I was doing or they wouldn't buy their cannabis. I gave that technology away. Everybody gave me everything that I needed to learn. My neighbors and friends started coming to my house, taking pictures of my garden, taking measurements, and then they went home, bulldozed what they had and copied what I was doing. And it eventually spread to all of California now uses some version of the light deprivation technology, the outdoor light deprivation technology that I designed and created for all intents and purposes. So what was it that I had done? What I had created was a hyper water nutrient and labor efficient system, a system that allowed me to cultivate cannabis with the least amount of employees, the least amount of water and nutrients used in the fastest and most fail proof institutionally safe and regimented organized design and i would have 20 rows about 60 foot long by 10 foot and each one of them would have their own strain inside of them and each one had their own nutrient regimen each one of them would be harvested at a different time and i could do two runs a year that way and i was running you know several thousand pounds a year with five or six full-time employees so at every metric that there was for cultivation i had ruthlessly ground it down 
to the most efficient way possible using the least amount of water, the least amount of nutrients, the least amount of labor, et cetera, et cetera. Plus I had come up with some very innovative ways of trimming and curing that are, you know, you know, hybrids of what all my friends had shown me. So when I met the team that created the Sun Grown Zero technology, the team of PhD scientists, the first thought I had was this is the worst day in my life because they've got something that is like the, the natural endpoint of what I was doing on the hill and I'm not involved in it. And when I got in touch with them about six months after the, when I went to visit their R&D facility and I saw it and I saw that it was working and it was magic. Six months later, maybe a little bit less than six months later, I got in touch with them and it turned out that the whole thing had fallen apart. The owner of the land that they were on was sick. They had to leave the property. There was a falling out among the scientists and the company basically was dead in the water. I had DCM at the time using it as a consultancy. I was going to become a cannabis consultant. And instead what I did was I created a new company called Sun Grown Zero and I became a 50% partner with this science team. So that company is gone. Their initial guys, no one even knows their name, but they know who Sun Grown Zero is because I just spent the last 18 months traveling all over the world speaking at conferences. I built that trailer that we bring around the country to show people how we can bring natural sunlight into an indoor space with no electricity. I hired a CEO who's out on the West Coast right now making deals left and right with cultivators, with media guys. We're working with some of the biggest players in the industry right now, both in Canada and in the United States, and we're reaching out into the Latin countries. So it's really just, it ended up being just a natural extension. It was like, you know, take the efficiency levels that I had created and let's take it to the nth degree. The goal with Sun Grown Zero from a design standpoint is to cre- recreate the environment of to cultivate in that I had on the mountains in the Emerald Triangle. Blazing sunlight, lots of fresh air, no buildup of humidity whatsoever, bone dry environment because I was in a basically a high desert. That's what that's where I lived, was in a high desert. So no humidity, lots of blazing sunlight, and lots of cool, fresh air all the time. So what we do with Sun Grown Zero is we bring natural sunlight into the room. It's not a version of sunlight. We don't use mirrors. We don't collect the sunlight. We have a very specific patented technology that brings the sunlight in unimpeded while simultaneously absorbing the UV and reflecting away the infrared. It's simple and it's brilliant at the same time. Every time I hear that, I think, wow. I can't wait to get you inside one of our facilities and you see it live. Because I can tell you that you talk about the wow. When I went to that facility, the test facility, R&D facility, I was fully expecting to laugh in this guy's face. I was like, there's no way that you, he showed me the cannabis that he had grown and it was as good as anything I had ever grown in my life. And he's telling me he's got this big six foot glass tube and that's how he brings the sunlight in the room and he's giving me the story and I can't make higher I can't make heads or tail of it I'm like I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna laugh in this guy's face and it was in November in Santa Rosa and it was cloudy and raining and he opens the door my chin just hit my chest it was like just brilliant white light just pouring out of the door And he goes, he walks me around to the side and there's the electric meter and it's not moving. And I was just like, no way, 
there's got to be like a hidden extension cord somewhere. He let me search the whole property. I was blown away. I can really understand that. It must have opened up so many doors in your own mind about what you could do now, especially once you got to know the technology better. My first thought was I lost and he won, really. And it's only through a set of really uh, unusual circumstances that I had an opportunity to become a part of this. You know, so I feel blessed in a, in a lot of ways. Some of the people who are going to be listening to this are going to be learning about cannabis as well. I, I've learned, for example, that uh, I'm trying to remember the names of the two families, Indica and Sativa. Indica and Sativa. And the woman who uh, presented it to me said, there is no difference. I mean, when people say this is a Sativa, you're creating the imagination of what you think it's supposed to do. But there's so much crossbreeding that it doesn't make any sense. I would tend, I would tend to agree with her. Like I've been humbled. Like even me, my first, probably my first seven years, I grew from seed. So I'd start my seeds, grow them for six weeks. You sex them. You separate the females from the males. You grow the males in a separate location. You store the pollen. You collect their pollen and store it. And then you bring it up. And when the plant's in flower, you have to like carefully put like a bag over one of the buds and shake it so the pollen gets all over it. And that's how you create your seeds. That one bud then will get pollinated. And that's where you'll get your seeds from. I crossbred everything I had all the time for seven years. It would have, so if I got this lemon haze that I really liked and I had this blackberry that I really liked, I made a blackberry lemonade, right? Uh, so that's 100% true. The distinctions between sativa and indica are, for all intents and purposes, they're useless at this point. You're just talking about terpenes and types of physical endocannabinoid responses that you want. Those types of classifications really just come about from uh, trial and error, you know. So you've got an OG Kush. It's a heavy narcotic type of high, very high THC, has a lot of pinene type of a terpene. So it smells like oil. It smells like pine needles. Uh, It tastes very uh, aromatic in that way, almost like uh, rosemary flavor. Not my favorite. I grew it because the buyers wanted it. In fact, my, all of my favorite strains that I was growing in 08, 09, eventually the buyers just would tell me, listen, we can't sell that stuff anymore. So I like the lemon sour diesel. I like the Mr. Nice. I like the blackberry. I like the, uh, the blue cream. These were all strains that me and my friends had created up on the hill. And the buyers were like, what do you want me to do with this? It only took me six and a half years for the light bulb to go off on my head. I go, okay, then tell me what you want me to grow. Drive down to the city, go to a dispensary, and buy the clones. Bring clones up there, make moms out of them, cut clones off of those, and then I would grow what the buyers wanted. I didn't like almost any of the stuff that the buyers wanted. I like the sweet, fruity strains that are like medium and THC content, like a Mr. Nice might test it, like a 14% THC and 4 or 5% CBD, plus also got the other, all the other can- cannabinoids. It would have a really fruity, almost like a grape jelly or a, a blueberry type of a smell and taste. Um, yeah. The lemon sour diesel was this just incredibly lemony, you know, really complex flavor. Again, not super THC high, not the kind of thing that you would smoke it and you just like sit in the chair and just be like, you know, a catatonic. We used to call it like a catatonic high. I was never into that. I know guys are. There are people that are basically like, we, the cannabis is no good if it doesn't get me as high as it possibly I can get. That's all they care about. 
I, I'm more of the type of guy that I like flavors. I like growing stuff that smells amazing. Like you almost want to like rip the bud off the plant and eat it. You know, it's just like. But you see, that's the thing about you growers. You become really good connoisseurs of what you're, you're really experiencing. Yeah. There's the Coors Light version and then there's the higher end of. The perfect analogy is vodka. OG Kush is essentially the vodka of cannabis. So you can drink Coors Light. It's going to be cheap. You drink enough of them, you're going to get, you're going to get drunk, right? If you want to just buy something that you know is going to get you drunk every single time on like two or three shots, just get vodka. Two or three shots of vodka, you're going to be banged up. That's the OG Kush. There's crappy versions of, of cannabis that are out there right now. And, you know, they're going to be inexpensive ones. The OG Kush has become so ubiquitous that almost every major strain that is popular has some Kush in it. What's next? And how do people reach you if they need to connect with you? What's next is Sungrown Zero is participating in series of small festivals and conferences in the Southern California area between now and the end of February. We have our website has been launched. It's www.sungrownzero.com. That's S-U-N-G-R-O-W-N-Z-E-R-O, Sungrown Zero. We'll be participating in uh, conferences and symposiums all over North America and Canada over the first six months of this year. We anticipate, as I said, an announcement about our first facility in New Mexico within the month, maybe even sooner. As a side note, I would like to introduce to your listeners, uh, Ruben Lindo is the acting CEO in, uh, of SunGrown Zero. And if you pay attention to Ruben on social media, he's the face of the company out and about right now while I'm at home spending time with my family, essentially. I was on the road from October of 17 till October of 18, probably almost four weeks out of five. So I've been home for the last two months kind of recuperating and spending time with my family. So Ruben's carrying the torch right now. If you look him up on social media, he's everywhere. He's working with Snoop Dogg's team, working with Matt Barnes of the Sacramento Kings. We're, uh, we're making in inroads with a lot of the big celebrities. We're working with Athletes for Care, which is working in all four major sports to uh, remove cannabis from the banned list. Yeah, we're, uh, we're doing social media and social justice projects in New York State. We're working with the New York State uh, Marijuana Board to implement social justice programs for minority cannabis business owners. So we're, uh, we're out and about. If you, if you do info at sungrownzero.com, it comes to me. Thank you very much for your time. All right, man. Thanks, Milton. Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned. There's going to be more coming. Until then, stay uplifted.